0: Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 5. I'll be reading uh, verses 16 to 18, and then I'll continue reading verses 36 through 47. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 6 of the bulletin. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I have a testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never seen, you have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them, you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you, your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what
1: i say buenos días la lectura de hoy viene del evangelio según san juan capítulo 5 versículos 16 a 18 y 36 a 47 precisamente por esto los judíos perseguían a jesús pues hacía tales cosas en sábado Pero Jesús les respondía, mi padre aún hoy está trabajando y yo también trabajo. Así que los judíos redoblaban sus esfuerzos para matarlo. Pues no sólo quebrantaba el sábado, sino que incluso llamaba a Dios su propio padre, con lo que él mismo se hacía igual a Dios. El testimonio con que yo cuento tiene más peso que el de Juan. Porque esa misma tarea que el Padre me ha encomendado, que lleve a cabo, y que estoy haciendo, es la que testifica que el Padre me ha enviado. Y el Padre mismo que me envió ha testificado en mi favor. Ustedes nunca han oído su voz ni visto su figura, ni vive su palabra en ustedes, porque no creen en aquel a quien él envió. Ustedes estudian con diligencia las Escrituras, porque piensan que en ellos hayan la vida eterna. Y son ellas las que dan testimonio en mi favor. Sin embargo, ustedes no quieren venir a mí para tener esa vida. La gloria humana no la acepto, pero ustedes los conozco. Y sé que no aman realmente a Dios. Yo he venido en nombre de mi Padre y ustedes no me aceptan. Pero si otro viniera por su propia cuenta, a ese sí lo aceptaran. ¿Cómo va a ser posible que ustedes crean? Si unos a otros se rinden gloria, pero no buscan la gloria que viene del Dios único. Pero no piensen que, voy a, que yo voy a acusarlos delante del Padre. Quien los va a acusar es Moisés, en quien ustedes han puesto su esperanza. Si le creyeran a Moisés, me creerían a mí, porque de mí escribió él. Pero si no creen lo que él escribió, ¿cómo van a creer mis palabras?
2: Thank you, Daniel Basso. Uh, Of course, we're gonna have a Q&A time right after this, uh, a chance for you to ask questions, so feel free to jot them down and have them prepared in advance um, if you'd like to be a part of that conversation. But first, let's pray together as we consider this passage. God, we look to you and we're asking that you would come and that your spirit would really Just dominate this time. That you would fill our minds, that you'd fill our hearts, that you would make us alert, not just physically and mentally, but most of all spiritually, attuned to you. And we pray that you would change our minds on a few things, most of all about who you are. Help us to see Jesus in a new way. Bless this time. Be here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing in our new series called Questioning Christianity. Questioning Christianity. And we're looking at some common objections to the Christian faith. Things that make it hard for some of us to get on board with Jesus. To get on board with the Christian faith. And last week we looked at that common view that Christianity is just too exclusive. Uh, There just can't be just one right way to God. You can find that on our website, the audio recording uh, link provided there. Today we're looking at another popular doubt, and it's this, that the Bible is just too unreliable. It can't really be trusted. Many of us doubt whether the Bible really is an accurate account of Jesus' life, whether it actually is the Word of God. We have questions about the historical reliability of the Scriptures. Isn't the Bible full of errors? Then how do we know it hasn't screwed up on something really important, a critical claim? Weren't the biblical writers too religiously biased to be trusted? Uh, Weren't the ancient authors shaped by sort of a a primitive worldview that encouraged them to believe in things like miracles, which modern science has proven just isn't possible? Uh, Wouldn't it have been easy for the writers just to make stuff up about Jesus with no accountability? Hasn't historical scientific research proven that the Bible is largely myth or legend? Uh, Don't we only today have only messed up copies of the Bible's original manuscripts? Isn't there actually no corroborating historical evidence of the life of Jesus outside the Bible itself? And aren't there other ancient documents, accounts of Jesus, that weren't included in the canon such that what we now have in the Bible is at best arbitrary, just a collection of ancient writings, or at worst, the result of a power-hungry conspiracy of the church. Come on, I saw the Da Vinci Code, I know the true story. These are good questions, important questions, and there are good answers. And the answers to those questions are... No, yes, no, no, no comment, no, and no. All right, let's sing a song. We're done, right? No. These are great questions, and there are great answers and responses to these, but at the risk of seeming evasive, and I know it's a risk, I'd like to defer responding to those specific questions until our Q&A time in a few minutes. So you can circle one of those or jot it down if, if you think it's something that you want to talk about, the historical basis of the Bible, because I want to focus our time right now on something else. It's an aspect to this objection that I actually hear on a far more regular basis. Many are walking away from the Bible today because they are, because you are, we are convinced It's just impossible to understand what the Bible really means. Not because it's too hard to read, because it's too unclear. That the Bible is unreliable in the sense that we can't really know what it really means. There are too many different ways of reading the Bible. Too many conflicting interpretations. It's too hard to comprehend with certainty. Too many disagreements about interpretations, and so, hey, I just want to give up. It's not worth the effort, or I'm not convinced we can ever arrive at any answers. And so, to investigate this issue of the reliability and the understandability of the Bible, I'm going to look briefly at a passage, this passage from the Gospel of John. Some Jewish leaders here were accusing Jesus of breaking their religious laws. Why? Because Jesus healed a physically disabled man on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was a day of rest, not work. So they were coming after him. Jesus is responding to his opponents in this passage. And in the course of his response, we actually learn a lot about how Jesus viewed the Bible. He's trying to give validity to his testimony, to his authority. And so he's telling them about how he relates to Scripture. Very helpfully, how did Jesus interpret the Bible? What can we learn from him? And I think what we find here are four important principles. Let's take a look. The first of which is this. Number one, Jesus believed the Bible. Jesus believed the Bible. Jesus disagreed with the religious leaders about the interpretation of scripture on matters like the Sabbath, but one thing they agreed upon as first century Jewish people, as rabbis, was the authority of scripture that they agreed that it really was divinely inspired. It really was the word of God. You see this in his references to the scriptures in verse 39 and to the writings of Moses in the Old Testament in verse 46 and verse 47. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Matthew 5, Jesus is quoted saying this, I tell you the truth, unless heaven and earth disappear not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, from the scriptures, until everything is accomplished. And anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments from scripture will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus took the scriptures very seriously. You might even say he submitted himself to its authority. Jesus believed the Bible. He accepted it as trustworthy and as true. Which might sound obvious, but it really isn't a small thing. So we start here. One of the big reasons that we can begin to accept the authority of the Bible is that Jesus did. If you're beginning to believe that he is who he said he was, you can begin to believe the Bible is what he says it is. The authoritative communication of God to the human race. And you see, what you really can't say is, Jesus is everything to me, my Savior, my Lord, my God, but I won't embrace the Bible like he did. Uh, Jesus was right about everything, and I give my life to him, but he was wrong about this, these pages, these words. You can't like Jesus and not like his Bible. After all, as Jesus says in verse 39, these are the various scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says. If you're coming to know Jesus, love him, trust him, you'll trust his take on scripture even when it's hard. You see, it's sort of a matter of trust, isn't it? If a person that you are getting to know as an acquaintance tells you something that's hard to hear... But because they're an acquaintance, you might actually start to listen a little bit more easily. But how much more so with someone you call a friend, with a deeper history and relationship with them. They tell you that same thing that was hard to hear. You're more open to them, much more so with a loved one. How about someone that actually dies for you and tells you a truth that's hard to believe? Would not you have a different kind of openness to the trustworthiness of those words based upon that individual's testimony? This is what it's like to hear Jesus say, you've got to listen to the Bible. I have. I do. You don't have to embrace the entire Bible right from the start, but you do need to know that Jesus embraced the entire Bible. Number two, Jesus acknowledged the humanity of the Bible. So first, Jesus believed the Bible, but secondly, Jesus acknowledged what I'll call the humanity of the Bible. Notice again in verse 47, Jesus doesn't say to the religious leaders, you do not believe what God wrote. Although again, as a first century Jew, he surely believed that scripture was written by God. That's why it was authoritative. That's why it is called inspired, to use that theological term. Instead, Jesus says, you do not believe what Moses wrote. Referring to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, which Moses is believed to have penned. See, Jesus affirms the divine authorship of the Bible. God wrote it. That was our first point but jesus also affirms the human authorship of the bible that real people co-wrote the bible under god's direction by his inspiration in the language of peter's epistle in the new testament with the holy spirit carrying along their thinking and their writing and these were real people like moses with real stories Real biographies who spoke and wrote in real human languages, like Hebrew in Moses' case, who lived in real geographic places and experienced life through real human cultures and human forms of communications. And that means there are two practical implications we can draw from this in interpreting the Bible. Number one, that as we read Scripture, therefore, it's vitally important for us to do the hard work of understanding the scripture's original meaning. What I mean by that is that our first responsibility is to try to go back into the world of the Bible and understand it on its own terms. Not what did this passage mean to me or what do these words mean to my normal modern American sort of English speaking mindset and sensibilities, but to sort of put that on hold just for a second to be able to ask, well, what did this mean back then and to them and there? To acknowledge that this was written in ancient language languages to ancient people, by ancient people, through ancient cultural forms. And so we need to work through understanding what the author meant when he or she wrote it or said it or sung it and how much our confusion about Scripture actually gets clarified if we would just hold to this commitment, this principle. But secondly, we're invited, therefore, to pay attention to the genre of literature that you're reading. And a lot of people that I talk to give up on the Bible because they say, hey, I, I just refuse to read the Bible literally. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you feel that today. Or someone that'll ask, and I hear this often, are you one of those Christians, are you one of those pastors who read the Bible literally? You know, as if to expect and assume that there's a certain high degree of commitment to those that read the Bible literally, even if it's a foolish commitment, perhaps, and then those that are sort of a little bit more uh, wishy-washy, you know, a little bit more permissive in their reading, they'll kind of take it down the literal scale. But see, if we believe, as Jesus believed, that the Bible was written by human authors as well, that means they communicated, in fact, through a wide variety of forms of literature. That what you find in the Bible is historical narrative, like we find in our passage today, but you also find loads of poetry, Uh, You find a lot of prophetic literature. You find songs. Uh, You find a lot of images and metaphors. You also find letters. You find an ancient form called apocalyptic literature. You find ancient case law for you lawyers out there. None of these are supposed to be read in exactly the same way, in the same way that you wouldn't read the lyrics of your latest tune in the same way that you would read the Washington Post. It's not anything sort of uh, spectacular about reading the Bible. It's simply called being a good reader to honor the different genres that we find in the Bible. There are certain parts of the Bible that you must not read literally because they were always meant to be word pictures and images and metaphors. They're meant to be poetry, not because you're soft on the Bible, but because of its genre. Because we need to respect the Bible's literature on its own terms, to read it as a work that was written not only by God, but also by real people in a real time and a real place. This too, together with that first idea of reading the Bible according to its original meaning and also now reading it according to its genre, literally when it's meant to be, but non-literally when it's not meant to be, clears up a whole host of interpretative challenges in the Bible. Give it a try or do it in community. See what you might come up with. Number three, third principle, Jesus expected the Bible to disagree with us. Number three, Jesus expected the Bible to disagree with us. Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now commentators widely believe that here when Jesus says someone else who comes in his own name, that he's referring to pretender messiahs who were very common in the first century. They would rise up, claiming authority, looking for a crowd to lead and to start a revolution against Roman oppression. Jesus says... Y'all accepted them, all these pretenders, these leaders. You were willing to crown just about anyone in your history. You accept them because what? They gave you glory. They flattered you. They told you what you wanted to hear. They made you feel great. And he says, this is why you have a stumbling block before you in not understanding who I am and not understanding that the scriptures tell you about me. Think about this for a second with me. One of the biggest barriers, Jesus is saying, one of the biggest barriers to our ability to accept God's word, to embrace scripture, is that we all have a tendency and desire only to accept what flatters us. That we read the Bible and we only are looking for things that make us feel good. When it says nice things about you, when it already agrees with things you believe, And that's not to say that the Bible doesn't have wonderfully hopeful and beautiful and even affirming things to say when they're true. But the question is, what are you looking for? What do you expect the Bible to say to you? Because a lot of us walk away from Scripture simply because it disagrees with things we already believe. We say, I don't like what the Bible says. Look, if it's God's word, shouldn't you expect his thoughts to be higher than your thoughts? If his ways are higher than your ways, if his character is more perfect than you, shouldn't you expect that his definition of love might take you to places that are uncomfortable. That his definitions of justice might be confounding. Of his definitions of humanity and true humanists might actually feel upside down. Shouldn't we almost expect that? If we dare to believe that it's possible to encounter something at all called the very word of God. If you only find yourself reading a Bible or parts of the Bible that only agree with you all the time, you might want to look down and notice that it's probably your own hand that's doing the writing. (laughs) You're reading yourself. And you're only surrounding yourself with yourself. Guess what? You do that. There is no salvation because we cannot save ourselves. Don't you want more? even if it's an uncomfortable more at times. The reason why this is so important is because today, a lot of people, I'm going to guess a lot of you, a lot of us have a hard time. We do accepting a lot of things about the Bible, not so much for historical reasons as much as ideological reasons, namely what it might say about gay, lesbian, transgender identity, a big debate that's going on right now, what it might say about slavery, what it might say about women, what it might say about other religions as we talked about last week. But can you consider this, that being troubled by some of what the Bible teaches isn't a reason to believe that the Bible isn't the authoritative voice of God, it's a reason to believe it, in fact, might be the authoritative voice of God. You say, well, there's so many interpretations. Do you know, do you realize that the one that's hardest to accept, the one that's least popular, just might be the truest interpretation? I don't mean that as an absolute rule, of course, just because it's hard, it's true. But I mean, our tendency is to select those out. And only to go for the ones that click most easily in. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Jesus gives us a hint. He says, we do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. It's really interesting. He doesn't just say we don't seek glory from God. He says, from the only God. Making a point that there's only one. In other words, What he's saying is the reason why we love being flattered by scripture is because we seek glory from other so-called gods. Things in our lives that we like to give godlike status in our lives. What the Bible calls the idols of our hearts. In other words, for example, my personal freedom is ultimate in my life. Don't you dare shackle me in any way. So I get mad when the Bible tells me, make yourself a servant of others and put their needs before your own. It feels like slavery. The Bible calls it love. Where I find all my identity in my work. It's it's who I am, what I do for a living. And so I hate it when the Bible tells me that I have to take a break. And do Sabbath, as Jesus is discussing here with the religious leaders. Don't do that. That's threatening to me, you see. The parts of the Bible, Jesus tells us, that bother you the most usually reveals the true gods in your life. The parts of Scripture that make you mad expose your true idols. So what are they? What's that page in your Bible that you're just ready to rip out? And tell me, is there something underneath that that has a grip on your soul that it shouldn't? That has ownership of your life that God alone should have? That you're seeking to deliver you from something that only God can deliver you from? Here's what we need to remember Interpreting the Bible isn't just a literary exercise, it's a spiritual exercise. Your attitude matters, your heart matters. What's going on in here has everything to do with whether or not you're going to get God's word and love God's word. You can't believe things you read in scripture if you're only seeking flattery or glory for yourself worth pondering dear friends number four and lastly this last principle we find here jesus says that the bible is all about him the bible is all about him verse 46 he says if you believe moses you would believe me for he wrote about me and again in verse 39 Later in the sentence there, in the verse there, these are the very scriptures that testify about who? Me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Interesting words considering that the portions of the Bible that Jesus is referring to, those written by Moses, were written perhaps 1,500 years before Jesus was born into this world. But this is what Jesus is telling us. It really is a clue and an answer key to so many of our troubles in the Bible. Which is why I want to give it to you. Why Jesus gives it to you. And it's this, that the Bible is a collection of 66 distinct literary works from the ancient world. We call them books of the Bible. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Jesus is telling us that all 66 books in the Bible are actually linked together as a single coherent story. There are many different narratives in the Bible, different people's lives, different parts of the story of the nation of Israel, of the early church, of all that's going on, different parts But there is actually a single unified story that's found in Scripture. And at the center of that story, which means at the center of all of reality, is the person of Jesus. It's the story that God made all things in this world as an overflow of his love, and yet we, the center of his creation, rejected his love and decided that we would try to live on our own apart from him. In our brokenness and our selfishness and our self-crowning rebellion against God, the whole world fell apart. We fell apart, but the whole world fell apart together with us. But God did not let us go. He committed himself to rescuing us, not because we asked for it, not because we wanted it, but simply because he loves us by his grace as a gift he chased after those that did not want to be chased or rescued first moving across this world in the nation of Israel, showing the ways in which he would work one day through the one true Israelite, the Messiah, the person of Jesus, who one day came upon the scene, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, offering salvation freely to those who would believe. And he's coming again, And he's going to make all things right. And he's going to take the story to its true climax of a perfect reflection of the God who made this world and who made those who are created in his image. Jesus tells us that this is the overarching, single, unifying story across the entire Bible, and he is at the center of it. And in fact, he even says, you can read the Bible, you can study the scriptures diligently. Some of you have, and you can totally miss the whole point if you miss Jesus. So there you go, answer key. (laughs) Every single part of the Bible is about Jesus. So, a couple of implications, three quick ones, and then we'll close. Number one, whenever you open up the Bible and you're looking through a passage, whether if it's hard or easy or whatever for you to read and understand, you must ask, along with all the detailed questions about what's being said and what's happening, ask, how does this relate to Jesus? Because Jesus says, whether if it's the earliest passages from Genesis Or if it's the narratives about him or the letters of Paul or the Psalms in the Old Testament or the stories about Israel. Every part of the Bible relates to him in some way. It either tells us why we need him, showing us our sin or our brokenness. Or it shows what he has done for us, giving us pictures or illustrations of what his redemption is really like. It tells us who he is sometimes indirectly through other characters in the bible it shows how he changes us by his grace it tells us what he is doing in the world and what this world is one day going to look like because of him but every part of scripture relates to him are you asking that question it'll solve a lot of problems for you it means that even the hard places in scripture The things that you don't want to hear or know, or even if it's hard to stomach, you still need to say, how does it relate to Jesus? Maybe that's the key to make it make sense. How does Jesus relate to sexual identity? How does Jesus relate to injustice in this world? How does Jesus relate to this and that? That is the question. Because he is the person that makes sense of it all. Second quick implication. Second quick implication that you may, in fact, eat bacon. (laughs) And this is what I mean by that. I don't know how many times I hear in in conversation or I read, and maybe you've articulated this yourself or maybe you've heard it too, that, well, if you accept what the Bible says about this hard issue or this disagreeable thing, this thing that just grates on our modern ears and sensibilities, if you accept what the Bible says about that, well, then you're going to have to refrain from ever eating bacon or pork, or you're going to have to offer up a goat sacrifice every time you do something wrong, or you're going to have to just follow everything that the Old Testament ever says, everything the Bible ever says. And friends, that's just not true, not because we're deciding that it's not true or because we think it's inconvenient to believe that that's not true, but because Jesus told us that it's not true. That he himself And the New Testament authors have told us that many of these ceremonies and rituals in the Old Testament were not only temporary, only for the time of Israel, but that they were actually pictures and previews and foreshadowings of who Jesus one day would be. So when he actually in person arrived on the scene, there was no more need for those previews. The reality is here. And we're told this in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Colossians. We're told it by Jesus himself here. When he says, Moses was talking about me. What do you mean, Jesus? There's no Jesus mentioned in the first five, four, five, six books of the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament is the name Jesus personally, in reference to him, mentioned. What did he mean? He's saying it all pointed forward to me. Those sacrifices of lambs. I am the true lamb. My blood, my life in place of yours. All those cleansing rituals and ceremonies were meant to show you what you need me to do for you because your soul is filthy. Will you admit it? All your selfishness, all your excuse making, all your thoughts just come to terms with the thoughts that you don't even articulate, that are just ugly and dirty. So let me give you things that get you thinking about dirt. So wash, and here's another ritual, and here's another ceremony, and here's another thing. He gave that to the nation of Israel to get them thinking about what they would need and what God would one day do through his king. These things which went away after Jesus was here, you see, we don't need to do those things because the reality is here. A helpful key and actually response When people raise that question, well, then why don't you listen to the rest of the Bible? There is actually internally from the mouth of Jesus a reason why we don't need to do those things. Number three, and lastly, a quick implication. Jesus is the center of the Bible. Every page whispers his name, and he offers you life on every page and in his name. Jesus says, come to me to have life. It's not offered to you just by the empty words on a page, but through those words, you find a person. Through those words, you find a presentation of a personal promise of grace in him. Come to me to have life. Do you read the Bible, whether if you're reading it for the first time, Or reading it after many, many years of reading? Do you read it to gain more life? And do you know that the way in which Jesus offers true life, eternal life to you, was through his death? The top part of the passage, it reminds us that the Jewish leaders hated what Jesus was saying. They started to plot to kill him. You know they succeeded. They did kill him. That was their conspiracy, but it actually was God's plan and purpose for the world. That here was Jesus, a man, yes, but he was also God. As this passage tells us, he unequivocally was claiming equality with God, making himself equal with the Father. And that matters a lot because in his humanity, what it means is that Jesus, when he died on the cross, when he suffered hell, On the cross, which is, you know what he suffered. He was, in fact, serving as a stand-in, as a human being, for you and me. Taking the judgment that we deserve for all of our lusting for flattery and glory. All of our sin and our selfishness, but he also stood there, not just in his humanity, but also in his divinity as God offering up a sacrifice of infinite value in the sacrifice of his life. Not just another person dying for me, but the God-man dying for me to pay for our infinite offense against an infinitely glorious God. This is how he purchases life for you. This is the life he offers to you, and he does it through his words. What a mystery. To think that you could open that crackly old Bible maybe that you have on your dusty shelf. Or a brand new one that your friend gave and you kind of haven't really wanted to read. Or flipping through pages that make you mad, or maybe that you've literally ripped out of your book. I know people that have done that. And to think that maybe, just maybe, there's something in here that I haven't yet seen. Maybe there's, in fact, not just words, but a person. And maybe not just any old person, but a person who can give me life. What if you dare to take that hypothesis, know that claim, know that promise, and you open those pages anew and see what might just happen to you. Let's pray. We ask, Jesus, that you would speak to us, that you would give us life, that you would teach us to read your word, that you would give us help in understanding your word, that we would see you in your word. We pray in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.